Gracious God, we ask that no more calamities fall our way. And we ask that your spirit continue to pour itself out upon us so that we may be open to the message that you have for us this day. Because, Lord, you are a good master, one who is worthy to be served and whose love is revealed through our service. So continue to guide us and direct us so that we uh, may be encouraged and equipped uh, through your word proclaimed this day and then go out from this place and live it out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, anybody remember a few years back uh, when the WWJD bracelets were really super popular? Anybody remember that? Uh, you might have had one like that, perhaps, the little cloth ones, or you might have had one uh, that was like the little rubberized kind, or maybe one with beads. You never know. Uh, I know I sported one of those for a while, and not to make all of you uh, feel a little bit older, but uh, those first became popular back in 1989, and that was 28 years ago. Ugh, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Anyway, uh, Thursday night when I preached, um, several of the people sitting there were not even born in 1989, so... Uh, I had to explain a little bit about this. So I'm going to explain to you too, in case you aren't, don't happen to be familiar, uh, the idea of the WWJD bracelets was that if you were contemplating a big decision or you had some action coming up, that if you just would pause momentarily and ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? That the answer would just become clear to you. And then you, of course, could act appropriately. You could make your decision based on uh, the answer to that question. And when I was a teenager, what would Jesus do? I, you know, it worked okay most of the time for me um, because, you know, my dilemmas were relatively simple. Uh, for instance, when I contemplated uh, driving my uh, teenage sister out into the country somewhere and leaving her, <laughs> I would say to myself, what would Jesus do? And I'd bring her home. <laughs> when I thought about swiping a few bucks out of my mother's purse, I would ask myself, what would Jesus do? And then I would take a few fewer dollars out of my purse. <laughs> Or when I was about to lie to my parents where I was on Friday night, I would ask myself, what would Jesus do? And I'd confess where I had been and who I had been spending time with. And this seemed like a pretty decent system at the time. The problem was I, like most of you, have the mind of a fine litigator. You know, I would say to myself, I want to go drop my sister off in the woods and leave her there. What would Jesus do? Well, if Jesus had met my teenage sister, I'm pretty sure he would have taken her out in the desert and thrown her in a well somewhere. Or, swipe a few bucks for my mom's purse, what would Jesus do? 
Well, maybe that's why we don't hear so much about Jesus' late teenage years in the Bible, because he got caught with sticky fingers in Mary's purse, too. Or to lie about who I was hanging out with on Friday night. What would Jesus do? Well, his posse, the people he ran with were fishermen, uh, tax collectors, lepers, and prostitutes. So I think my friends would have fit in just fine with his group of people. So we're good. The idea that the WWJD bracelets, uh, while well-intended, they were no match for our clever human maneuvering and quickly became ridiculed as a little bit too simplistic uh, with questions like, when we started asking things like this, what kind of car should I buy? You know, like Jesus really cares. But if he did care, then would he think I should drive a, a, a Hummer because then I would never get stuck in anything, even though I did once see one stuck in snow getting pulled out by a little bitty Jeep. It was pretty funny. But anyway, um, or would he want me to drive a Prius because it gets good gas mileage and that's better for the environment? You know, what would Jesus do? Or, you know, what would Jesus do? Would he bomb our enemies or would he love them? What would Jesus do? Would he vote? Who would he vote for? Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians. What would Jesus do? With these types of questions, those four simple letters stamped on a little rubber cheap bracelet moved very quickly from preaching to meddling. And I don't know about you, but I don't like inanimate objects meddling in my life. The flawed assumption was that the answer to every single question that we could ask could be simply answered by looking at Jesus' example and his words and actions as found in the Bible. The very fact that there wasn't a Nazareth Homer dealer uh, makes us realize that that's hard to fully grasp, that Jesus could answer every single question that we today could devise. In many matters, there is not always a clear answer to the question, what would Jesus do? And even in those places that scripture is pretty clear, we often find ourselves at odds with actually living them out. For instance, we often find it hard to love those who are living in our house, those who are close to us let alone love our enemies. But that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He forgave those people who were crucifying him when he said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. What Jesus does does not jive with what we would do or even perhaps what we wish he would do. But it's always been hard for us to live up to the example of our heroes. You know, the honesty of George Washington with that whole cherry tree business or the integrity of Abraham Lincoln or the selflessness of Mother Teresa or the determination of Nelson Mandela or the bravery of Teddy Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill or the throwing arm of uh, Peyton Manning or the swing of Babe Ruth. You know, who can live up to these expectations? None of us. Eventually, most of us Uh, realize that these exemplary figures are inspirational to us. Yes, they do inspire us. But they also cannot be replicated 
exactly by any of us. You know, no matter how hard I want to throw a pass 50 yards, it ain't happening. But if we are honest with ourselves too, I think when we ask or asked in the past, if you don't ask this question anymore, what would Jesus do? More often than not, our answers are determined less in reference to Jesus than on the basis of our own preconceptions and our own personal preferences. Both religious liberals and religious conservatives tend to assume that Jesus would behave as they do. And of course, Jesus would also share the same prejudices and the same practices We are tempted either to justify ourselves and reconstruct Jesus into our own likeness or the alternative is that we feel overwhelmed and dejected because we believe Jesus has called us to an impossible task that we could never live up to Jesus' high ideals. Therefore, we won't even try. Our mental gymnastics and justifications to avoid loving God and that which God loves, and the acts of the rich and powerful to follow their own ways is why the psalmist we heard Dick read this morning cries out for mercy. Have mercy, mercy. It is why the Apostle Paul laments in Romans 7, 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Mercy, God, mercy. You know, we deserve punishment for our sin and for co-opting God's kingdom ways that lead to life with our ways that lead to death. But out of God's great love for us, God does not give us what we deserve. But instead, in Jesus Christ, God steps in and takes the punishment we all deserve for the sins of not just us, but for the whole world. God indeed hears and answers those cries of mercy. An overabundance of riches and power tends to lead to uh, oppression and not freedom. You know, we all think that, well, if I just won the lottery or if, if I just got a job that paid just a little bit better, then I would be free. Then I would be uh, self-sufficient and I wouldn't need to rely on anybody else to survive. But what we really say when we want this kind of freedom and self-sufficiency that we don't need anybody else is that we really don't even need God. But this is not freedom. Freedom is not wealth and power or self-sufficiency. Freedom is, as <clears throat> excuse me, as Eugene Peterson observes, becoming a servant to a better master we were created to actively embody the kingdom of god here and now and forevermore jesus prioritizes his kingdom ways when jesus teaches his disciples to pray we just prayed the lord's prayer a little bit ago and we say thy kingdom come thy meaning god's kingdom not ours thy will be done on earth right here and now as it is in heaven This is the priority that God gives us even before 
He says that we should ask for our daily bread, for forgiveness of debts and debtors and sins and sinners or trespasses and those who trespass against us. Uh, Before protection from temptation and evil, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So a better question to ask than what would Jesus do, especially on this Servant Sunday, is what would Jesus have us do? You know, we may wish that Jesus was vague about what he requires. Maybe like Mark Twain, who famously said, It is not what I don't understand in the Bible that troubles me. It is what is perfectly clear that does. When Jesus is asked directly, uh, what is the most important commandment? He does like Jesus does, and he gives us two things, but we'll go with it. He says to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that first part seems pretty easy, to love God. Okay, we can, we can do that. Loving God is fairly easy. But where it gets tricky is that if we love God, we also have to love everything and everyone that God loves. The problem is that God's love often seems far less discriminating than our own if God is love and God loves all that God has created and God has made everyone not just us in God's image then God's commandment to love means that we all have to love all who God has made even those different from us and who are disagreeable to us after Jesus made the statement that established love of neighbor as a kingdom priority Some teenager like me asked, who is my neighbor? You know, going back to those loopholes, I'll work around this somehow, Jesus. Jesus chose to expand our limited vision of neighbor from those living in proximity to us and who largely look and act like us by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus really points out there the question, who is my neighbor, is a bad question. In the story, proximity and kinship are not sufficient to define neighbor. The neighbor is the one who has the opportunity to do good to one in need. That's what the Samaritan does, and that's what the priest and the Levite do not do. They walk on by. They got that proximity. They don't live next door to me. They're not like me. They're not part of my tribe. So therefore, I'm going to keep on trucking. They were not neighborly. The Samaritan was the one who was the neighbor. Arlen Holtgren says, whoever has love in his or her heart will know who their neighbor is. One cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. I think that's great. One cannot define one's neighbor. Because if we try to define our neighbor, guess what? We start sorting people out who's in and who's out, and that's not our job. We can only be a neighbor. And that's what the Samaritan was in that story. The late Peter Gomes wrote in his book, The Scandalous Gospel of Jesus, If the kingdom of God and his righteousness are given priority, all other things will fall into place and be seen in their proper perspective. 
This is called the long view. For only in taking the long view can we avoid the tyranny of the moment and the terror of the immediate. Recently, we have had a lot of terror of the immediate. Last Sunday, about this time, you know, somebody came into a church and shot a bunch of people. People got up that morning and came to church. They expected just to come to church. And some of them didn't get home. And some of them went home with people, without people who they came with. This tyranny of the moment and the terror of the immediate can overwhelm us. It can make us despondent. It can make us... um, want to hurt people it can make us uh, want to throw up our hands and make make us want to just stay in bed all day but that's the short view that's how people who perpetrate acts of violence like these think that they win by taking the short view they think that killing people is somehow expedient is the way to get what they want But the long view, in the long view, God reigns, and that means despite the troubles of the moment and the difficulties of the time, no matter how terrible they might be, God's justice will prevail. Among the chief things that Jesus would have us do is to see the world differently. Throughout the Old Testament, you see, if you only have eyes to see, because Jesus is or God is laying out this different way of being. He lays it out for his people, Israel. He lays it out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lays out a different way if we only have eyes to see. To recognize what seems to be so real, so powerful, so appealing is really only illusory, is only an an illusion, uh, is an important thing for us as Christians. Because we have to compare it to the long-term and permanent interest of God's kingdom ways of love. Because those are the things that last. When we take this long view, we can stand firmly in this world because we know that our citizenship is in another world. It's in the kingdom of God. Love is imprinted on us as those created in the image of God. We know what we ought to do, and the Holy Spirit helps empower us toward loving action. But being a disciple, being a follower, being a servant of Christ is not an easy task and it requires daily commitment, perhaps even moment by moment commitment. Because if you try to look down the road too far, uh, it'll get overwhelming to you. But instead, look at today. Thomas Merton once said, it seems to me that I have greater peace and I am closer to God when I am not trying to be a contemplative. In other words, someone that sits around and kind of prays and thinks about God or trying to be anything special, not trying to do these big, gigantic, heroic acts, like feeding the whole world, 
but simply orienting my life fully and completely towards what seems to be required of a person like me at a time like this. That's what Jesus would have us do. Not overwhelm ourselves, not do something that's impossible, but do what is possible for you right now. A servant posture leads us to God and not away from God. You know, we can all become arrogant brutes or we can be children of God. Jesus knew the game plan. Jesus understood completely the will of the Father and he was able to act upon it completely. But we too, even though we are not Jesus, and we can never do exactly what Jesus did, we too can know the end and we too can direct our lives toward that end. But it takes a long view to avoid losing hope in what we see. Servant ministry. That stuff that you can do here and now. Requires us to do things that may never bear any fruit. That you may not see the fruit of. It's those little things. But you do them because that's what Jesus would have you do. We feed people because we love God and we choose to be good neighbors. We teach our children because we love God and we choose to be good neighbors. We care for the, and visit the widow, the orphan, the imprisoned, the sick, the dying, and the downtrodden because we love God and we choose to be good neighbors. As servants of the risen Christ, we know what Jesus would have us do. Jesus would have us bring light out of darkness, life out of death, forgiveness to the condemned, justice to the oppressed, love out of hatred, and bring peace out of enmity. You know the answer because you are created from and created for love by the God of love. So look up to the Lord and serve a better master. Serve with confidence in the triumph of Christ's kingdom. And be encouraged today and tomorrow and the next day. And never ever lose hope. Because that is what Jesus would have us do. Amen.